Over the last few days, I've been watching some of the Netflix documentary series, Sunderland Till I Die. And the series opens with a scene in a church. It captures people going to worship, entering into prayer, and the opening shots are of this beautiful historic church building. Quite quickly, however, the documentary demonstrates that for this northeastern city in England, economically challenged but proud working class, the center of life, the center of community, is not the church, but the football stadium. And as the episodes of the series continue, it's the ups and downs of the Sunderland black cats that anchor and guide the city's sense of self and well-being. One fan even says the stadium is our church. And the stadium is actually called the Stadium of Light. I don't know why. It's very curious. Football is at the center of life. People's identity is rooted here. You could say they are in with the team, with their football team. For Paul, Christian identity is rooted in Christ. Are you in him? That phrase appears in verse 2 of our reading this morning where Paul and Timothy, having been identified as the writers, make clear they're writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That word brothers, it's important to note, is not exclusively about men. Some translations render it, well, faithful brothers and sisters. And this is important because what unifies those to whom Paul is writing, what is most important about them, is not their gender or sex, not even their ethnicity. Paul, as a Jew, is writing to Gentiles. What matters most is that they are in Christ. This is their shared and common identity, that they are in the one who is central and sufficient. That phrase, in Christ, is not one that we might normally use to talk about faith, to talk about being a disciple of Jesus. We'll talk about being a believer, a a follower in some kind of way. But this phrase, in Christ, appears some 85 times in all of Paul's letters and has come to be understood as integral for what he understands to have happened in the person of Jesus and what it means to be the church. For Paul, those who are in the church are in Christ. Jesus has become central to their identity. The word in speaks of association, being in the sphere of, being united with. United with Jesus in his sphere associated with him. In contemporary language, we maybe capture some of this. We talk about someone being guilty by association or part of the in crowd. Sports fandom itself actually captures some of what this means, like what is depicted in Sunderland Till I Die. To be a fan of the Black Cats, to be a Longhorn fan, is to associate yourself with the team, right? Like you wear their colors, you adopt certain behaviors, you read certain things, you engage in certain practices. Fans will sometimes even speak of what we need to do out on the pitch, out on the field, right? Like, powerfully associating themselves, like, oh, really, are you going to get down there with them and run around? Unified with the team in some way, in, associating with. There's something similar at work here in this language. Those in Christ are associated in this sphere, unified with Jesus. He has become central to who they are. One of the particular challenges of Colossians and its emphasis, its emphasis upon the centrality, the sufficiency of Jesus, his greatness, 
is how those claims brush up against the assumptions, the claims of a pluralistic culture. The exclusivity of the claims made about Christ by Paul here and throughout the New Testament are a challenge to us, living when and where we do. We have neighbors, friends, family members with different worldviews, different faiths. We're confronted by this plural world. We feel the cross pressure of that. There's much that could be said about that, about the challenge of pluralism, the exclusivity of Jesus. But one of the things Colossians, I think, invites us to consider is the way it diagnoses the problem of the human condition, the problem of a broken world, in a way that is different and quite unique. Many of you know a few months back that I badly sprained my ankle, and that has meant several trips to a local physiotherapist over the last few months. On one of my first visits there, I mentioned that, yeah, I also like have pain in my back, my hip kind of thing. And very quickly, the physiotherapist deduced, oh, that's all on the same side of your body, right? Like your, the lower back part, the hip that hurts is the same side where I sprained my ankle. And taking measurements, observing my gait as I walked, she responded, she reasoned out that I needed an insert in my right shoe to help with the ankle and the hip and the back, changing my walk my step a little bit. For all these years, I've assumed that the discomfort I felt with my back and my hip had to do with a weak core or a a particular injury I had had when I was younger. And that, therefore, I labored with that idea of like, oh, the, the solution involves strengthening core and doing all these kind of things. But it was this specific diagnosis that led to the specific and actually making a difference solution. The conviction of the New Testament of Colossians of the Christian faith involves a specific diagnosis regarding the brokenness of the world and the human need we all feel. The conviction is, the diagnosis is, is that what is not required is enlightenment. Different rules or a universal project of self-improvement, helpful as those things might be. Rather, the diagnosis is that human beings are in need of a new association, a new identity. At the start of this new year, the Christian conviction is that you are not in need of a new resolution or some new life hacks, helpful as those might be. You're not in need of those things to become who you were always meant to be. According to Paul, according to Scripture, human beings are dead. Dead in transgression, dead in their inward selfish bent, caught in darkness. And what is required is not minor course correction, a a bit of education, a few tweaks, or for you to just really commit to that project of self-improvement. What is required is new life, new identity, new association. Later on in Colossians 1, Paul will write of those in Christ as being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Still in Colossae, still in Austin, but a new association and with it a new identity. Those in Christ are made new. This newness of identity, of association, comes through in the use of the word saints in verse 2. You'll see it there, to the saints in Christ, in Colossae. That word saints is literally to the holy ones. 
To be in Christ, to have him at the center of life, means one is a saint, is a holy one. Those in Christ, the saints, are set apart. Holy things are those that have a special status. The fine china is holy among the dishes of the house. Uniquely valuable, highly regarded. In our home, we have one particular tea set. And to say to be thirsty after a jog or working in the yard, to be sweaty and stinky, and to grab the fragile and beautiful teacup from that set for a quick drink of water would be an affront to the status and regard of that entire set. You just don't do it in our house. In our world, in our lives, there are so many ways we're taught, we're instructed to acquire, to preserve status for ourselves, to build for ourselves high regard. If I work out enough, I'll achieve the status of desirability. If I educate myself, I will be consistently employable. I'll be recession-proof. If I consume the right things, make the right purchases, adopt the right perspectives, I'll, I'll achieve the status of acceptability. We try on, we work after different identities to acquire and preserve status. And I I think this morning each of us are in our own way aware of the instability inherent in these identities. The errant social media posts, the effects of age on our body, the shifts in the market, each and all can disrupt our security, our status, our sense of self. For the saints in Christ, things are different. The good news of Colossians is that your status is not rooted in these things, these things of your own making. But your status, your identity is rooted in your association, your proximity, you might say, to Christ. In Christ, something has happened to each and every one of you. He has made a difference. And you're now held secure as one of great value, of high regard preserved and maintained in Christ. In one of his other letters, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes of those in Christ as washed, sanctified, justified. And they're all completed verbs. It has been done. It has been accomplished. So don't be tempted then, at the turn of a new year, to see your status, your identity, your security as made possible in these other arenas, as something you could fashion for yourself. With these things, you cannot be kept safe. You cannot maintain your value or regard. Rather, the move is to trust and deepen your roots in Christ, deepen your association with him. Are you in him? Within the Old Testament, it is the people of Israel who are regarded as holy ones, called saints even in Psalm 34, for example. But that holiness is not a product of their doing. That status is a result of God drawing near to them, delivering them from slavery and bondage. In Egypt, then and only then at Mount Sinai, are they told, are they commissioned to act and live as a holy nation? Not earning that status, not making it for themselves, but living into a status that God has achieved for them. The central reality for the people of Israel is that they've been chosen, delivered, called, as our Old Testament reading this morning said, and made holy by God. This is the same reality for those in Christ. Set apart, washed, sanctified, justified, completed action. 
and held now in high and stable regard. In Christ, this is your status and identity this morning. You are held in high regard. Sainthood, of course, also comes with certain behaviors and actions, right? The people of Israel are told, you're a holy nation, act like it. It's an identity that must be lived into. We might say the saint, sainthood comes with a certain function. In my house, that tea set is used for specific occasions, specific purposes. It has a function. So too are the saints in Christ, set aside for God's purposes, his good and pleasing use. In verse 1, Paul speaks of himself as an apostle by the will of God. In a very literal way, if you're familiar with the story, Paul has been given a task, right? Speak of Christ to those who are not Jews. For those of us in Christ, there might not be a similarly dramatic and clear sense of calling or purpose to a specific action. But each of us is called, is commissioned to participate in God's good purposes. In verse 7 and 8 of our reading, Paul writes of this figure, Epaphras. Epaphras is in prison with Paul at this time. But he seems to have been the founder of the church in Colossae, the church to whom Paul is writing. And notice Epaphras is described as a beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. The word for minister there can also be servant. And it's the same word from which we get the term deacon. In the church, some are specifically called or ordained as deacons, set apart for service and ministry in this unique public way. Yet there's also a way in which the whole of us, all those in Christ, the whole of the church, whatever our careers, our jobs, whatever our position, we are all called to the service of Christ. In the arts, in the worlds of commerce and business, among children, as a retiree, called to be a servant of Jesus on behalf of others. And according to Paul, Epaphras has this profound influence on the saints of Colossae. It is from he that they have learned the grace of God, Paul writes in verse 7. What a remarkable testimony. What a remarkable testimony about this man's work. They learned the grace of God through him. They learned the gospel. Epaphras' name appears just four times in the Bible. He's largely forgotten to history. He doesn't have the dramatic story that Paul does. Yet as a servant of Christ, others learned the grace of God through him. How might others learn of God's grace through your life? The exercise of your vocation, in the hiddenness of the places where you work, where you labor. How might others learn the grace of God and truth, the gospel, through the life collectively of our church? To consider this calling, to, to embrace it, is part of what it means to be a saint, is part of what it means to be in Christ. This is part of your calling. Are you in him? Because in him we have a new identity with high status and with specific calling, good purposes. Related to this identity also is great hope. In his book, Who God Says You Are, Klein Snodgrass names nine different factors related to new identity in Christ. And the last of the factors is your future. 
Your identity is shaped by its anticipated future, he writes. And those in Christ have this great and glorious future, a hope laid up in heaven. New Testament scholar Nijay Gupta suggests that Colossians was written to combat, to counter a certain philosophy or worldview that was tempting those in Christ away from their hope in him. In an uncertain world, a world of suffering, of difficulty, of intractable and difficult problems, a rival vision of how to secure oneself through discipline and rigor had emerged in the city among the church. And Gupta creatively imagines the following rival letter articulating this rival vision. He writes, Dear Colossians, we know you're experiencing suffering. No doubt you're aware there are spirits and powers that have authority over our mortal world. More will be said about this in the the coming weeks in Colossians. These powers prey on the weakness of human bodies and flesh. Thus, our world is fraught with chaos. We can offer, though, knowledge, wisdom, secret teachings that can protect you from these forces, malevolent forces. By controlling, combating, disciplining your body, you can resist these powers. Once you've submitted yourselves to such discipline, you'll get Wisdom, visions, provisions that are divine. We can offer you the proper route to spiritual fullness and perfection. Reading that letter, it made me think of some of the things I see posted on the wall at Cherrywood Coffee House. New spiritualism, new ways to be secure in an insecure world. What Gupta notes is that Christ is entirely absent from this rival vision. There is no sense of the centrality, the sufficiency of Christ. He who is at the center is missing. And without Jesus, in fact, there is no hope. In that vision, there's nothing but fear and the striving to measure up. Because in Jesus Christ, we have the assurance of God's acceptance. We have the assurance that we have been adopted as we are into his family. We made faithful brothers and sisters under the fatherhood of God. And the children of the house have the promise of a great inheritance. Elsewhere in Colossians, Paul will write of the hope of glory. First Peter points to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The hope of glory is the hope of life with a God who is glorious. The inheritance that does not perish or fade is one that only God who is eternal can provide. Those in Christ are under the same confession we heard in our gospel reading, beloved daughter and son, with you I am well pleased. So there is great hope. My kids are now at the age when I was that age. My brother and I talked a lot about the possessions, the inheritance we might receive from my parents. It didn't get too morbid, but we looked forward to the things that we might get. And probably around the ages of six to nine or so, what stands out to me now is how small our imaginations were. We thought at such a small scale. We didn't think about the IRA or the savings account. I remember talking, like, maybe I'll get dad's wallet, or maybe I can have that hockey stick hanging in the garage. Small things. Things that have faded. Things that have perished, right? That wallet is gone. That hockey stick was broken and junked at some point. The hope we have in Christ, the hope of inheritance in him is different. The hope the gospel offers is unique. 
because Christ as God's Son is able to guarantee an inheritance of glory stored in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy or corrupt, where the interest rates won't rise or plummet and you lose your life savings. In Christ, there is enduring hope. As the quote on the front of your song sheet reads, in him we have an anchor. And the thing about hope is that it gives rise to a new way of life. Your anticipated future shapes your present identity, right? Hope animates the identity we have in Christ. Paul points to faith and love as the flowering of the hope we have in Christ, this hope that endures. Knowing that they are safe and secure, knowing the good end God has in store, those in Christ are able to love freely and sacrificially. Now are able to put their full trust on Jesus. They're able to live in full dependence upon him and extend themselves, knowing that their status, their identity is rooted not in any earthly thing, but is held fast, held fast in what he has accomplished. This is the bearing fruit of the gospel, increasing in the world, increasing in our lives. This is the transformative power of what it means to be in Christ. In Christ, God has shown his great commitment to creation, to us. He has shown himself to answer the needs that we have, the brokenness of the world, with total sufficiency in Jesus, giving us new life, making a way for us, new identity, and providing us with great hope, hope that does not put us to shame. In Sunderland, the hope that people have in their team is palpable in that series. It's manifest in how they dress and how they live their lives and the passion they express, win or loss. The thing about this series, though, is, spoiler alert, the season is ultimately quite disappointing. The team is relegated to a lower division. The manager and coach are sacked. Players transferred out. The thing made central does not endure does not satisfy. But Christ is the eternal Son of God, is able to secure our hope. And the new identity found in him, this identity of high status, of high regard, is sure and certain. He is the anchor that holds. So the question is, are you in him? Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we come as a people this day from, I'm sure, difficult and full and busy weeks. We come buffeted and confounded and in need of great hope. We come also, perhaps whether we know it or not, in need of new association, new identity, identity in you, Christ. And whether we would say, whether we would answer affirmatively or not to that question, I pray that we would, in this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, have a glimpse, a fresh glimpse, of the goodness, the beauty of what it means to be in and with you, O Lord. And in a few minutes, as we come to this table, O God, Would you meet each and every one of us where we are at? 
Would you confirm in us the high status we have in Christ? Would you commission us, O oh God, in this specific function of serving God's good purposes? And would you enliven in us great and enduring hope? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.